So at the Ortho Show, sometimes we try to bring you sort of an educational uh, component. So today we're bringing on uh, Nader Sammy, who's a dear friend of mine. He's the CEO of Nimble. It's a revenue cycle management company. It can be confusing understanding the aspects of, of billing and how you run a practice. It is a business. So Nader really sort of breaks down the nuts and bolts of what a revenue cycle management company does, provides some uh, nuances and ideas for those practices that are considering a private equity uh, partnership and platform as well. It's a really fascinating instructional, educational episode. I know you're going to like it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast where we bring you the best of the best. We are the voice of orthopedics and we're always thrilled to bring new concepts and ideas. We have a very close friend of mine today, Dr. N uh, doctor, I'm giving you a doctor <laughs> now. Right, I'll take N it. Nader Sammy is the CEO <laughs> of Nimble. Uh, Nader, what a pleasure it is to have you here, brother. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Excited to be here. Uh, we're always, you know, we've gotten to know each other quite well. We spent a lot of time at Becker's yeah. uh, at the healthcare meetings there. You always put on such a great show there, Thank brother. You. You know, I, you know, with just one superstar after another, you seem <laughs> to know them all. But such a pleasure to be here. So we really want to talk a little bit about you as we sort of work on in and how you got to this, the CEO of a revenue cycle management company. But you're an Indiana boy. Michigan boy? Michigan went, went to boy. school in Indiana. Oh, but you're okay. Never mind. I got the Notre Dame <laughs> part wrong, I guess. We're going to get you there. All right, so you grew up in Michigan. So are we are we okay with Michigan State or Michigan? What's going on with Sharif Bechet on this? Um, Michigan State's a hot mess right now. Yeah, there's a lot going <laughs> a on lot there. A lot going on there. Right I don't, there's sure. no, no good outcome yeah, in, in the no. near term there. We'll figure it and out. I, and we're always happy to see Michigan lose. Yeah, and, and, even though my wife went there. That's all right. Go blue, <laughs> not so much today. All right, but Notre Dame, what an experience, right? Notre Dame was such, must have been such a great school. Yeah, fabulous. It's a special, magical place, and yeah. I would go there a thousand times you over must be again. a smart guy. It's like <laughs> Everybody's like a valedictorian from their high school that gets in there. Well, that's great. So, And then from there, we got a little connection because my son Caleb is a uh, junior at uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison, yeah. as we speak. Gotta love Madison. Yeah, it's a great, great college town. Yeah, Doesn't great, get better. great, great college town. So you did a joint law and an MBA program? I did. All right, so what was that all about? Uh, you know, plan was to was was to do that, but um, started out in law school and then added the joint program while I was there. So um, it, it was great. It was a good combination of, of both, and I just thought, uh, I knew I wanted to do something more in the business world. Didn't want to really practice law long term, but I did end up practicing corporate finance law for about three years. So finance attorney, right? You sort of combined yes. the business world yeah. with the attorney aspect, and you did that. And then you switched to investment banking sort of full-time? Yes. Yeah, I went to New York. Okay. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Uh, when was that? So that, what, what that was, was roughly in 97. The Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf no. of Wall Street. So actually, funny, There's um, everyone would ask me about that. I'm like, no, it wasn't like that at all. And then... Five years later, ten years later, there's a group that they now call them the next Wolf of Wall Street, and they were the guys who worked down the hall from me. I guess I just didn't get invited yeah, to their parties. Just weren't with the cool kids there, <laughs> yeah. daughter. What's going on, brother? They had all these crazy yeah, things going exactly. on. Now. Well, that's for sure. But, you know, from there, 
how did, how did you sort of break into the world of revenue cycle management? And even describe that. I think everybody needs to know what, what is a revenue cycle management yeah. company yeah. do? So, so I'll answer that part first. So revenue cycle management is essentially handling really the back the back-end business issues as it relates to surgery centers, surgical practices, so everything from negotiating managed care contracts to handling the entire billing and coding and reimbursement process, building analytics around that, but essentially handling all things really related to reimbursement for, um, you know, whether it's physician, the, the, the clinics or the surgery centers. But not necessarily the expense side, right? You're, you're trying to maximize the revenue and then the expense side's left up to the individual practices? Yes. We tend to get involved in helping, given some consultative guidance and work, and we can build analytics around that if the groups are capturing that data. But yes, as a general rule, it is is more revenue focused. Generate more revenue. Generate more revenue. Right. Manages, solves all problems. Exactly. Alternative <laughs> sources of revenue. We'll talk about <laughs> yes. that as well. All right. So, but so how did you, how did you trip into revenue cycle management in medicine? How did that yeah, happen? So good question. I've gotten that one many, many yeah. a time over the years. So I did grow up with um, parents as physicians. So my dad was a surgeon. Okay. My mom was a hematology oncologist. And so kind of grew up around healthcare always, um, wanted to go into business, did the JD MBA, went down that path, practice law, went into investment banking, New York and San Francisco. When I was in San Francisco, I was covering a lot of the outsourcing companies, business process outsourcing, you know, whether it's healthcare or not, um, and was starting to see a lot of trends and opportunities. Always really wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and on my own. And, um, and we were also starting to see a trend um, with rapid growth in essentially what I don't think it was even called revenue cycle management back then, but essentially the billing process, the outsourcing of that, as well as trends with respect to leveraging offshore resources and such. And so kind of pulled all those pieces together and ended up leaving um, investment banking. I was in San Francisco actually at the time there uh, during the height of the dot-com boom. And uh, that, that was clearly a fascinating time, kind of the deals we saw you know, happening in San Francisco back then, but ended up leaving you know, very entrepreneurial environment and vibe. So I, I really sort of forced myself to go from New York to San Francisco to go from working on multi-billion dollar deals to very startup-y environment because I knew that it would kind of help put me in that in that kind of creative mode and in that environment. So um, ended up leaving and starting a company. And actually day one, it wasn't actually designed to be revenue cycle management. It was kind of leveraging broader outsourcing. And then one thing led to another. I met someone at Stanford and medical center and we landed them as our first client. I mean, you think revenue cycle management within medicine is so ridiculously complicated, right? I mean, I take a look at the vendor list of the insurance companies, commercial payers. I mean, it's like most businesses like, okay, a cup of coffee is this, this is, you know, this is where you get paid and how the money comes in. I mean, we probably have a hundred different insurance companies that have a hundred different rules and whether they pay or they don't pay. And how do you keep track of all that? You know, it was an analog world, you know, when you started, but now it's, you know, digital has to have helped significantly. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, it's actually funny you say that it's complicated because I would say, you know, years ago, you'd sort of hear medical billing, a train monkey can do it. It's super easy, you know, simple, very commodity business. I think the more people have learned about it and the complexity and the sophistication of the payers, and you have a really mismatch, you have multi-billion dollar payers against small provider groups trying to go toe-to-toe with them. It's a, it's a difficult environment. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is very financially driven, very data driven. So having the investment banking background, you know, some people think it doesn't make sense. I actually think it makes great sense in this world because it is such a numbers driven business. And so we've invested very heavily in data and analytics to be able to track 
every bit of every claim in our organization, who's doing what, where it is, all the KPIs and metrics around so, all that. So, but you started from scratch. What was the name of the company? Aru, uh, Ajuba. Ajuba. So Ajuba. So, I mean, like, do you remember your first client? Our first client, was I was mentioning, was strrangely and bizarrely Stanford University Medical Center. No kidding. And, that's, and, God, uh, that's ridiculous yeah, met, to get such I, a I large client. I was lucky. Client. I met a consultant who was like, hey, what you're doing is interesting. I've got someone you should meet. I met him, and they took a chance on us. And then that really is why, that's kind of why we went from broadly services to immediately, like, we realized the complexity of RCM, and if we're going to do that, you can't you can't do multiple things. You have to do that only. So, that, so then it was like, okay, we're going to focus on yeah. that. And you get like one of the largest client bases you could possibly have as your first client. Yes, yeah, so that and, helped. Right, that helped a lot, <laughs> right? So that you can generate a bit some revenue, you can hire some people, you need some infrastructure. Yeah. And then you started going after, you know, regular routine practices at that point? So so that was the first business. So we, we yeah, we had practices as clients. We had... Um, we partnered with some of the big McKessons of the world and, and did some components of their work. And we did some work with health systems. We had UCLA after Stanford. We had Mount Sinai, um, had um, Ascension, St. John, the St. John's component of Ascension. So, yeah, we ended up as sort of a mix of hospital and, and physician at the time. So you build a book of business, right? Things are going well. Mm-hmm. So how did uh, it was National Medical Billing Services at the time? How, what's the connection there? How did that? So happen? actually, zero connection. We ended up selling. Okay. I sold, we ended up selling a Juba. Um, there were four of us that had you know co-founded that organization um, in 2000, and so we sold in 2006. I stayed on for a couple of years with my employment agreement. Left at beginning of 2009 and I took that year to figure out what was next and that's when I ended up meeting Lisa Rock yep and you know Lisa um, well yeah and so we ended up coming together and I acquired the company in April of 2010 fantastic so you had to take a year off based on the contract of selling the business yeah once that was over you were allowed to get just jump back in again and and start to revenue cycle management all over again yes all right fantastic so you and Lisa now, Lisa had an existing book of business at that point. Uh, yes. And yes. then you guys have sort of taken it to the next level. Tell yeah, us so where at we the time, are. So when I acquired the company, Lisa done a great job of building the business. And it was about a 35-person company. And then we just kind of went to work together. Um, and if you look at a lot of our senior team today, a lot of those folks were with us when That's I awesome. acquired the company 13 years ago. And they've done an amazing job of, of growing and scaling. And so today, fast forward, we're 1,700 employees. Now, you did a little private equity action in there somewhere. Did, yeah, just Tell a little. Tell us about that. So I would say two, a little less than three years ago, two years, eight months, um, we were getting ready to go to market, and uh, the firm who I ended up partnering with had been talking to me, looking at a software company in our space, and they ended up not getting that deal, but learned a lot about the space. And I had known them before, and just kind of re-engaged and spent multiple conversations and time with them. And they called back and said, hey, we're really love the space, love you guys. And, and our, all of our consulting work is showing us software and services are the two hot, RCM services are two hot areas in the surgery center market. And would you be interested in engaging? And I was getting ready to go to market in a few months. So I said, well, you know, give you a couple weeks and we'll see if we can work something out. And we did. And so I skipped the go to market process and we, we, uh, we struck a deal 
and we closed within 60 days, and that was January I'm just of 2021. St- I'm just going to sit here next to you, and hopefully, like somebody walks over and gives us a deal <laughs> right now. I'm like, come on, dude! <laughs> like literally, you get Stanford for your first client for your first business, and like not having to go to marketing, which is such a pain in the ass, yeah, and all of the concepts and process. Yeah. And, and so, have you been able to maintain control? I mean, how much do they take when they come on in? So I, I did sell majority okay. stake. I had significant majority. I sold. Uh, majority stake um, to to the firm. It's been great, wonderful partners. They're um, very supportive. You know, Ten billion dollar um, fund of assets under management fund, so large. They've got plenty of capital to deploy. We've done four acquisitions last year, um, and so they've been great, supportive, and helpful. You know, good. partners. So it's good it's, to hear uh, that the relationship it's all, it's all is been good. Positive, yeah. That's great. Now let's talk about the rebranding because I think that's that oftentimes does happen when you when you go to market you bring in it's, a, it's a, a good opportunity to sort of do that. So how does national medical billing go to Nimble? I'm fascinated okay. by that. So there there's a little bit of um, kind of historically a lot of people will refer to us as Nimbus. Okay. For NMBS. Sure. And so there's a little bit of a tie there from Nimbus to Nimble. Um, so a little bit of a you know. A, a nod to the to the old from that perspective, and then really at the end of the day, you know, when we think about who we are and who we want to be, is someone that's agile in this market, and certainly in surgery and surgical center, it's an agile market. So double well. entendre, we yes, like that exactly. And so that you know, an innovative and just being able to adapt to the changing environment, which is rapidly changing. So we just felt like it. And fit, nibble fit rolls of off the tongue. It's two syllables. National Medical Billing Services. There's a lot going on there. Yes, a lot but on. you got to spend a bunch of money rebranding every yeah, we single piece of paper yes. and thing. Yeah. Has Sign to on your building. Out. Sign and, on yeah. your building. It's not yeah. an expensive move, right. but it does. You know, it opens up the doors for a potential new business because it's a new concept, an idea. It's a, you know, it's engaging. Yes, it was great. It, so, so the thought probably kind of engage. You know, went through the process. We keep it simple and just go to National Medical. Which, because we had acquired four companies, and so we were, you know, continue to be broader than, you know, and broadening what we have always done. So one was to shrink it down to that and kind of keep, to your point, a lot of the consistency or rebrand. So we made the decision to rebrand, partially to, you know, we acquired four companies. We wanted everyone to feel one versus, you know, just becoming part of us. And so that was part of it. And then also just, I think, the energy, having something new and fresh, something different. You know, and set yourself set yourself up for you know the future, and it it I think it went really well. And what was very interesting, and again, we live in a relatively smaller market between surgery center surgical practices, but it didn't take very long for it to become just what people are calling us. I thought it might take longer, yeah, and it doesn't seem like it has. No, that's so awesome. It's gone well. Really, really happy for you. Good for you. All right, let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts yeah. of what happens with revenue cycle management. There's not a single practice manager, physician, or ASC that isn't struggling to come up with ways in which they can generate revenue. So give us some ideas of some alternative revenue streams, both for surgical practices as well as for ASC. Yeah. So some of these will be, you know, probably basic and obvious that most people are doing. But the the first one that probably moves the needle the most is if you don't have a surgery center, be thinking about a surgery center. And if you have a surgery center, really be evaluating your surgeons, their caseload that's happening outside of you know, whatever surgical case they're doing, where are they doing them? You know, how much is inpatient? How much is it at the HO, you know, HOPD setting? And how much is it your own ASC? Or how much might be at other ASCs? Because if you can figure out ways to capture as much of that within your own family, 
um, you know, that, that moves the revenue faster than probably anything else you can do. Um, I think other areas, you know, physical therapy, other ancillaries, which I think a lot of people are, of course, are doing, you know, whether it's imaging, um, uh, you know, imaging work, uh, DME, et cetera. Um, but one area I actually wanted to ask you about a little bit, and we're seeing a lot of, you know, there's, there's controversy back and forth, but some of the, uh, you know, regenerative medicine, right, stem cell, PRP, et cetera. So I'm not a clinician, so I don't take a, you know, I'm not taking a view on it. It's certainly a way that we are seeing centers generate additional revenue, challenging from a reimbursement perspective, question, and people, you know, raise questions on, you know, efficacy, et cetera. So I'm just kind of curious your view as a search on some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think that orthobiologics are here to stay. Anybody that says that there's not evidence to suggest that PRP or BMAC works uh, is just not doing a good enough job paying attention. And we don't like to use the stem cell word. You're not allowed to use stem cells. That's a four-letter word in orthopedics because uh, literally the FDA, there is no orthopedic indication for a stem cell at the moment. Uh, So you got to be careful with that. But the patient pay model uh, is something that most patients are comfortable with, right? There's high deductible plans, there's yeah. PPOs, there's HSAs, where people now understand that they have to pay for a part of their medical experience. You know, as a chief medical officer and founder of OrthoLaser, uh, you know, we deal with that on a routine and regular basis. But the point is, I think that patients want to be out of pain and they're looking for a source to get out of pain uh, and being able to, if they have to pay for that option to be able to move around pain-free, as we like to say, to champion their personal success, most people are willing to do that. And so I definitely think it is a you know an excellent alternative revenue stream with the biologics you know bolt ons for ortho laser too we'll give a little shout out to us <laughs> uh, but no i think that there's a lot of opportunity there uh, for and doctors have to just recognize that yeah so i mean that i think is is one of the you know the, the larger areas in terms of possible revenue boost there's medical tourism there's adding additional physician extenders um, but those, those are some of the, I'd say, kind of the big topic. Ones. You know, and it's funny, with private equity, we've rolled through private equity. My private practice is now a part of the Spire platform. And a lot of those things that you're talking about, I mean, we, you know, they, they really emphasize, right? Because, you know, in order for, for a private equity platform to be successful, you have to show that it works, right? right. We're going to reduce cost and expense and hopefully generate additional alternative revenue sources. But physical therapy, imaging, these things that you're talking about, owning an ASC. You got to own an ASC right now. If you don't own an ASC, you're missing out on a huge opportunity, right? ASC, 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 that's where everybody wants to go. So, you know, completely agree with the concepts and ideas that you're discussing. So spot on, you know, for sure. So let's talk about, you know, how about internal operations and the revenue cycle, the specifics, like what can happen inside the practice that you guys can help to generate on the day-to-day operation side? Yeah. So, so the first part I'll just kind of hit on, which is a little bit outside of our scope, but we see and kind of can point out and help is, is just the efficiency of how you're running a surgery center, OR utilization, staffing costs obviously are outrageous these days. So being very efficient on how you're handling those components, you know, hours of operate, all of that to, to make sure that you're really being thoughtful about how you're setting it up. Because if, if you do those parts wrong and you handle your revenue cycle beautifully, you're, gonna, you're still in trouble. Um, if you don't have a good managed care contract, um, that's that's the baseline of what you're ever going to get paid. So you negotiate a bad contract, you do everything else beautifully, you know, you're not going to end up at a great point. So those those pieces, I think, are really important to be thoughtful about. Make sure that you've done your work, whether you're bringing outside folks or 
or consultants or, you know, you feel good about your operation. From a revenue cycle standpoint, you know, that's really kind of picks up from when doctor sees, you know, sees patient, whether it's in the clinic or in the, in the ASC and having um, all the front end pieces in orthopedics are so important, right? The patient financial counseling, collecting from the patient up front before that surgery happens so you're not chasing them later. Um, the pre-auth is probably the biggest thing that impacts right now revenue and denials. So, you know, making sure that your team is getting a pre-auth for exactly what they need to and enough, you know, maybe, you know, we'll see it's pre-auth for the, it wasn't pre-auth or it was pre-auth for the wrong thing or it was pre-auth for not enough of the procedures that end up being performed or something else changed and then in there. And then who's doing the follow-up, right? That's the problem is like right. if they check the wrong box and there's a problem and it glitches through the system, you need someone like yourself to be able to circle back and say, why do we not get paid on this claim? Right. I mean, you want to try and mitigate mistakes before they happen, right. but you got to have backups and checkups, right? Yes. In order and, to make and, sure. And in those cases, you know, you may be able to make an argument to overturn that you didn't have a pre-auth, but they don't have to, right? You certainly, they don't have to be accommodating, but at a minimum, to your point, the feedback loop back to the providers and to the staff to figure out what needs to be done um, to make sure that you're not missing on that. So that's all really important front-end stuff, credentialing, uh, verifying benefits. All of that is really important to set the stage for the rest of the revenue cycle to go well, and that is, you know, you know, and you've got the transcription, you have the coding of the chart. The coding is so important, being able to make sure you're coding it accurately, timely, sequencing correctly to maximize revenue in a compliant fashion. Uh, just billions of dollars annually are left on the table by providers for not handling those parts so, correctly. So, so tell me how Nimble does that. Is there like an account executive or someone that's specific to a practice? Let's say it's a 10-man practice, yeah. right? How would Nimble come in and, and take over and help out? Yeah, so so if we came in and took over, we, we'd go through obviously the normal contract process, et cetera, and then what we have, we call a Tiger team, and a Tiger team essentially goes through and evaluates and looks at every aspect of your operation from the revenue cycle perspective and flushes out any issues, problems. So that's kind of like a very senior executive you know, team of superstars, kind of an all-star team that goes through and gets everything cleaned up and fixed. Because if you just take over and keep doing what someone was doing yesterday, it's not going to change. So a fast action response team comes in, does an analysis with your sharpest people, identifies good stuff, bad stuff, and then from there? From there, then the rest of the implementation team just finishes the implementation of that to make sure everything's ready, works. And that Tiger team will stay on that account, typically call it 60 days as an average. Sure. So they're working through and catching anything else that's Flushing, not flushing through the system well, and then you turn it through that whole time. You have we, you know, uh, it's our client services department. Sure. Think of it as the quarterback of your deal, yeah. And that is your, you know, primary point person to that ten man group, and that person is overseeing. They're the relationship person, but they're really an operational relationships person to whether it's the medical director, the administrator, the front end, front desk staff. They're handling all issues in terms of that communication, and then they're providing oversight to the actual operations team and we're departmentalized. So we would have a coding team that are coding specialists and they would be orthopedic coders, you know, coding that. And you would have your charge posters and your payment posters and they would all be on that account and that's their so work then, every So you day. got the fast action team that does the analysis, yeah. figures out what's wrong and what's right. And then you have an operations team that will then take over the account from there, yeah. 
monitor, coding, all of the things that are necessary. And then that relationship continues on. Yes, and another important part to that is what we do is we have a very strong uh, technology analytics team. We have data scientists on our team and such. And so we are, you know, putting together pretty thorough an analysis and you know month end reports and ad hoc reports along the way to be tracking what's happening and again those KPIs to so the client manager the quarterback of that deal is watching those but then we're having monthly meetings going over all those to make sure that you know we're on track and that the client and maybe there's something some feedback we won't need to give to the client on the pre-auth side or verification or demographic issues or whatever it is causing denials or there's something you know maybe we're not you know, we're behind on AR and we've let something AR, you know, grew from 18 to 20% over 90 and why did it grow? So we got to analyze that and figure so that no, out. The numbers so. do not lie. You yeah. got to make sure you're keeping a yes. close eye on the numbers. Yeah. As and those are go. really important to have in front of you. All yeah. This. And then obviously you provide monthly reports and access and all the things that are necessary. All right. So let's talk about one of the things that's really, you know, very prominent within orthopedics right now. And, and that's the private equity platforms that are uh, developing private equity supported platforms that are helping to really sort of change the paradigm of what's happening in orthopedics. And one of the big drivers of that is your EBITDA or for your valuation, right? Yes. Yeah, you want your valuation to be as high as possible so you get the best possible multiple and then your return on the investment. So what can practices do before they go to market that can help to increase their valuation yeah. as they're considering this? So, you know, as it's funny, as a, as a former investment maker, I always kind of try to break investment banking down to it's not too much different than the process of selling your house. So, one, you want to be in a really nice neighborhood that is attractive that people want to be in. Fortunately, orthopedics is a beautiful neighborhood. It's the neighborhood everyone wants to be in. And then from there, you want to have the house that's most interesting within that neighborhood that's going to get the highest premium relative to what you've put into it. And and there's different features and amenities to a house that are going to right, cool, great pool or great, you know, walk out, you know, basement, whatever it is, right? In this scenario, it's the same, some of the things we talked about on the revenue stream. So if you're thinking about your practice, the, the things that will drive valuation the most is your revenue growth and your EBITDA margin and your EBITDA growth. Gross margin also is very important, but I would say most important is your revenue growth and your EBITDA. So if you've, if you've got a path that's showing, you know, 20% revenue growth organically, and your EBITDA is growing at, at even you know, faster than that 25%, it's going to be very attractive versus someone that's at 3% and 2% growth in those areas. And how do you do that? You do it by, you know, a lot of the things we talked about before. ASC, physical ASC. therapy, imaging. Yeah, and rec- you know, obviously recruiting the right surgeons, doing right. the right kind of cases, being thoughtful about how you're utilizing your time, right? Whether it's in an ASC, in an ASC, certainly what cases are going in there, analyzing the reimbursement per case, you know, and, and profitability per case, all of those things. But, but yes, all those other components are the elements that will help drive you there. And look, you might be like in a situation where saying this is requires a lot of capital, right? Building an ASC, building out. This is actually why we want private equity. Okay. So do what else, what other things you can on that list that requires, that's not capital intensive, that can allow you to drive top line growth and your EBITDA up to the best possibility. And then you can lay out the picture for them about here's all the things we can do with your capital. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a shovel in the ground 
for an ASC does not add EBITDA to your practice, no. right? Takes you away. Actually, you, <laughs> have, you have to literally have yes, the ASC. It takes away. It's an show, expense. Right, exactly. So really identifying that low-lying fruit that can increase the, you know, the valuation uh, as you go to market. But you're right. It's like the chicken or the egg, right? Well, we want to build an ASC. We want to add five partners, but we don't have the capital to do right. that. That's why we want to go into private equity. So you just have the appropriate expectations, right? Yes. Nobody's, nobody's buying a business or, or putting in, in, an investment into your business and giving you free money because you're, you're nice. Right. You have to prove that you're worth it and yes. you have a strategy and you have worth. Yes. Right. And, and, and they're, look, these are smart people. And if you demonstrate you've got a strong leadership team yeah. that can actually execute on a lot of those things, they are certainly capable of finding people to bring in. But if you've got a strong leadership team, that takes a risk off the table for yes. them too. Because... Um, Again, they, they're gonna understand the pieces you don't have yet that you haven't invested in, can be invested in, and can go. But if you can lay out help with pro formas and saying, hey, here's actually the case you know, profile of our 20 surgeons. And if we move these to an ASC, here's what it would be. That's a pretty easy analysis. It doesn't cost very much money or time, just being thoughtful about it. That can help kind of create that story. It's all about a narrative and a story to create the vision for what this can be. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Are you doing any work for any of the orthopedic private equity platforms? Have you engaged with them as um, practices have rolled in? Uh, we are for some. Um, you know, probably leave names yeah, out. No, here, of course. But yeah, yes, we are for some, and we're um, in conversations with you awesome. know, many others. So what do, what do you think? Like, Here's another topic. I'm just throwing it up there. I know we didn't discuss it beforehand, but the remote therapeutic monitoring codes, that have developed these new CPT codes seem like an alternative revenue source as well, yeah. which is interesting because you can use it for like home physical therapy through Limber. Uh, I'm familiar with a company, Pain Scripts as well, which uses it specifically to manage chronic pain medication in patients. We just had a nutrition company on Mend that's using these codes now so that you, know, you can generate new revenue by managing your patient's care outside of the office as well. Is that, yeah. do you have any experience with that? We're seeing some of that for sure. And I, th yeah. I think it's, it's a, it's a big trend here. Yeah. I, I think just in our world of doing a lot of things remotely, um, you know, telemedicine in general and all of that, I think that there's, uh, there's definitely an opportunity there and for, it's, it's for, a, for sure. you know, and I think a nice, convenient, flexible option for both patients and the, the surgeons. Yeah, I think it really sort of expands the ability. It's a, it's a completely new revenue source that didn't exist prior. I mean, there is some labor intensity associated with it. You may have to hire somebody yeah. to help out. Although some of these companies provide the concierge service with it so yeah. that, you know, they do all the, the, the work and then they just send you the billing and you bill for it, which yeah. is, you're still monitoring and helping the patient. So tell everybody where they can find you guys. Where is Nimble right now? How do people identify where the, where you are and what, what's happening? Here in the show? Well, anywhere that's <laughs> it. Here at the show. So here at the show, we're on the, we're on the, tra on the, on the, in the exhibit hall. Excellent. a great booth, of course, as um, always. Yeah, we're in the exhibit hall and excited to be here. Uh, excited to be on the show. And then just in general, you know, our website is nimblercm.com. And, um, you know, all of our contact information is there. But, you know, we love doing this we love you know love working with talented surgeons who um do amazing work and we really get excited about finding ways to help them make more money and and capture all the money that they are deserved from the work they've done and too many you know again billions of dollars annually are left on the table by providers um because again it's a it's a mismatch it's a david versus goliath and you know 
David See, doesn't win very often. We're always we're always the 3.4 percent reduction for Medicare again going into next year. It just seems like every day we're asked to do more. We're getting paid less, and the worst thing you can do is do the work and leave money on the table. You deserve it. You've worked hard. We're healers. We're caring for patients. Patients appreciate the work that we're doing. And thanks to companies such as Nimble, like yourself, you can help uh, these physicians who may not have all of the resources to identify ways in which they can capture as much revenue as possible. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure having you on, Brother Nodder. I always look forward to seeing you. And, you know, I, I, I still have my memory of shaking Eli Manning's hand at, at, uh, at Becker's. And I said to him, I said, listen, Eli, I'm still not over the helmet catch. He looked me right in the eyes like, dude, you guys won like seven Super Bowls. Isn't that enough? <laughs> no, it's not. No, Never it's not. enough. Well, especially this year for the New England Patriots fans, we're not going to be uh, yeah. too excited, I don't yeah. think, this year, but we'll see. But keep up the great work that you're doing. We really appreciate. And what I really like best about Nimble is the is the, the give back that you give at this level, too. You know, at the societies and the meetings and at Becker's and here at OSET. Uh, you don't have to do that, but it's a way in which you're engaging with us and providing uh, some extra fun, and we really appreciate you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Happy to have you on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.